Uh, thanks, Doug, for that very kind introduction. Man, we should go get coffee sometime again. It's been so long, you know? I miss that. Um, hi, friends. So good to be with you. Um, as Doug mentioned, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor of a local church in Richmond. And actually, this month in November, uh, my church turns two years old. So it's still kind of like a baby church, if you want to call it that. And speaking of babies, this is my not-so-subtle segue, I just became a new father. <laughs> Thanks. My daughter, Eden, will be turning two months this, or two, yeah, two months old in November. So still brand new. Uh, you might be wondering, like, why I'm here speaking with you so soon after the birth of my child. I'm wondering the same as well. So forgive me if I have a little bit of baby brain. But, but honestly, I'm, I'm actually super excited to be here with you this morning because I love what we get to do as disciples of Jesus, right? We, part of our discipleship is staying connected as his church, his body. It's to gather here in worship, to hear and to proclaim the gospel and this is so important, especially in this season of COVID, where as, you, as we all have experienced, there's so much disconnection to our relationships and disruption to our rhythms. And so to worship like this in person and also online over Zoom, I think it's still such a gift. So when I got that email to come speak to you all, I was so excited. And, and then I checked exactly what I was asked to speak on, and it was Romans 13, quote-unquote, uh, secular and Christian rulers. And then I double-checked the schedule, and I was like, oh, you want me to come and speak one week after our BC elections and two days before the U.S. 2020 elections, which are arguably the most contentious and important and divisive uh, election in a generation, especially in the midst of a global pandemic. So I get to speak on that stuff. Cool. So friends, this morning, we're going to talk about politics and religion, two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company, and we get to do it. Come on now. It's good to follow Jesus. Okay, so let's get right into it. Donald Trump. Just kidding. I'm not going to talk about Donald Trump yet. I actually want to talk about someone else. So Let's talk about the person standing next to President Trump. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this man is Jeff Sessions, and he is the attorney, or he was the Attorney General of the United States from 2017 to 2018. Uh, the Attorney General is essentially the top lawyer of the land, so he's head of the Department of Justice, and he works directly with the President. Now, in the summer of 2018, the U.S. had a zero-tolerance policy when it came to anyone who illegally crossed their southwest border. They would put you on trial. Now, what that meant was migrants who were crossing the border with minors or children would end up being detained but separated from children or minors because they could only try the adults. And so, the Associated Press cited that at one point there were 5,400 children separated from their parents. This is the famous kids in cages or child separation policy situation that got such criticism and outrage. 
Now, during this time, Mr. Jeff Sessions, he cited a particular scripture passage to defend his policy. Can you guess which one? Right? Here's what Jeff Sessions said to, uh, uh, during a speech. He said, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves. Consistent and fair application of the law is in itself a good and moral thing, and that protects the weak and protects the lawful. Now, the problem is, it was widely agreed that the action by the U.S. government was bad law, bad policy, bad governance. And so, the Department of Justice got a lot of criticism and Many Christians who once heard about this rationale from Romans 13 also criticized Jeff Sessions because they thought it didn't apply. And it was such a stark example of somebody using the scriptures to justify their political agenda and more dangerously, their own power and authority. Now, in case you're still wondering, this issue is not resolved. It's a live issue. Uh, Just last week in the presidential debates, President Donald Trump was asked about this policy, and he had to respond to reports citing that there are still 545 children whose parents cannot be located. And so I remember hearing about this news that summer, and then, of course, last week it came up in the debates, and then in uh, preparing for this sermon this morning, I've been thinking a lot about this, and, and it's made me angry and frustrated and also confused. Because how do I, as a follower of Jesus, relate well to the government? Especially a government that might use God's word to justify themselves. So what if I disagree? What if we disagree with them? And it seems, though, that Paul is almost commanding us, we should obey our rulers and governments. So I feel like, am I going against what Paul is saying here? Do do you kind of pick up that tension? This is such a live issue. So that's why I'm so excited for us to tackle this together, because this is so relevant right now. And so, to jump into this passage, I do want to make it clear, Paul does say we should obey our government. I think that's undeniable on the first reading of the text. So I want to give you three reasons why he says this, and I'm borrowing here from Tim Keller's own commentary on this passage, and it's always great to steal or borrow from Tim Keller. So, uh, he says, we should obey, or or Paul says, really, we should obey, number one, because it is right. Right? Paul begins, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Meaning, hey, God put the government, the state that we live under, like God is the one who put that state or government in charge. And if that's the case, then these governments deserve our respect and our submission, at least for God's sake, even if we don't agree with them. And it's also right to obey our secular rulers in general because they have been established to promote the good and to punish evil. So verses 4 to 5, it says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason, They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Okay, so it's that part primarily. 
them promoting good, punishing evil, that's what makes them God's servants. Uh, are you picking up what I'm putting down so far? Yeah? Okay. The second reason to obey is because it's wise. You know, Paul speaks about governments, they're, they're, they're formed to keep good order, and thus, when we obey them, it's actually just the wise thing to do. And we all know this, our, our governments hold a lot of power, right? They sh shape and impact almost every element of our lives, from uh, regulations around what we can eat and how our food is processed, to curriculums for our children in schools, to upkeep and design of our cities, to, to healthcare, just to name a few. And 2020, oh my gosh, what a year it's been to see the full range and impact of our governments. Throughout the world, various and local governments have taken measures to combat COVID or to not. And that's cost us lives and livelihoods. So it's wise to listen, to submit to our governments in general because they should know what they're doing. And even right here, right now, we are doing that, right? Around gathering restrictions. Even this whole setup, being able to worship in this context like this, that's us obeying the government because it's wise, right? We want to trust what they are saying, lean on the experts of health officials. The third reason to obey governments, Paul would say, is because it's fair, right? Notice how Paul closes this passage, verses 6 to 7. He says, this is also why you pay taxes, and every accountant and CRA agent was like, woohoo, thanks, Paul, right? It's right there in Scripture. Uh, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing, you know, so give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes, right? If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Paul is saying governing is hard work. That's why we pay our taxes. That's why we respect our government. And my wife, Christy, and I, we, we keep saying, you know, especially since the start of the pandemic, it must be so hard to be a government official right now, right? Can you imagine uh, making all these difficult situations or, or difficult calls around complex situations, around gathering and health and policy and economy during a global pandemic? The least we can do, I think Paul would say to us right now, is give our leaders the respect they are owed, and the taxes they are owed. If they hold up to their part of the deal, ruling, let's hold up to our part of the deal, submitting, obeying. So pretty clear, it seems, right? Three reasons why we should submit to our governments, because it's wise, it's right, it's fair. And if that was that, then I could walk off the stage right now, that'd be the end of the sermon, easy. <laughs> but that's not how it works. Because if you follow Jesus for a while, if you've wrestled with the scriptures, if you've lived as a human being, you know it's never quite that simple. We are to obey, yes. And yet, there are two major instances when we might not be so quick to obey, might not be so quick to give our rulers unqualified and uncritical submission. And the first happens when it leads to idolatry. Listen to what Paul says. He, he says governments are God's servants. 
Servants, nothing more. And I think we can actually step back for a moment and extend that beyond government. Basically, any ruler, leader, whether they be the president of a university, CEO of a company, or even a pastor or the elders of a church, they're all servants of God, whether they know it or acknowledge it or not. Therefore, they can never claim what belongs to their one master to God himself. So if any ruler ever oversteps their bounds and claims the worship, devotion, ultimate allegiance of people, then that is no longer a government to be obeyed, but actually must be resisted. Are, are you with me? Now, in our particular context, it's very rare for the state to ask us unwavering devotion. I think part of what it means to be Canadian, especially on the West Coast, is to not really care that you're Canadian all that much, right? We're not really known for our patriotism, at least the people I hang around with. But the, the truth is, there are many governments today, especially totalitarian regimes and governments, that do ask for almost idolatrous allegiance. You can't criticize them, right? You can't contradict them. Uh, if you're in a political opposition party, you're in trouble. That's not really a problem for us here. But what I have seen among some friends and family uh, in the US, but actually here in Canada as well, is a more subtle kind of idolatry. It's the idolatry that any one political party, government, candidate, or issue can change and fix everything. So beware, Paul is teaching us. If any ruler or group promises that they, you can place all, their all your hopes in them, who say to you, I am the solution to your problem, who promises any form of salvation, that we have to be careful of, because that belongs to God alone. And the second reason why we would not obey a government is if they promote evil. Uh, we've kind of talked about this already. Hey, governments are here to promote good, to be agents of good, and to punish evil and uh, not reward injustice. And so here's a great example of Christian resistance to government engaging in evil and when, it needs, when people need to resist. So this is the South African church leader, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and this is him during the fight against apartheid. Uh, for those unfamiliar, apartheid was the formal and institutional racial segregation between the white and non-white population in South Africa. And so there's this one story uh, where Bishop Tutu and some other activists, they were attempting to meet with government officials during apartheid, but the meeting was denied to them. So do you know what they did? Bishop Tutu and these activists went to a nearby cathedral and decided to have a worship service. <laughs> now, the government was still angsty about them, so they actually sent in police officers to line the sides of the church to watch this congregation. Can you imagine if police officers were here watching this? Now, there's this eyewitness at that service who said, as Bishop Tutu was ramping up his sermon, he actually turned directly to the police and said, you have already lost. We are inviting you to come and join the winning side. Yeah, that's preaching there. Goodness, the Bible tells us, 
is the winning side. No matter how much a political party, government, or even police force might be in charge and might promote evil, it's God's goodness that we give our lives to. So these are the two big issues when we might need to qualify our obedience and submission, right? There's some form of idolatry going on, and if governments are promoting evil as opposed to good. But the million-dollar question, at least when I was reading this, is, well, how do I know when this is happening? How do I know, how do I determine this, that when this is happening? And that's why I love Paul's letter to the Romans. You always have to read uh, any passage in its wider context to get a fuller sense of what Paul's doing here. So what does Paul actually say before and after our passage this morning? Well, the first thing he does is he actually frames this whole conversation around discernment. A discernment is what's needed to determine, hey, how do we best relate to our secular ruler? So listen to what he says in Romans 12, 2, very famous passage. I'm sure preached on it already. It's, uh, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So our minds need to be renewed, Paul says, by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we don't conform, we don't fall into the pattern of thinking of this world. And then that's how you can begin to test and to discern what's God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what that means then is discernment is never simple or easy, but it's absolutely essential to the way of Jesus. So church, practice discernment. Through reliance on the Holy Spirit, through belonging to a larger community, a church who can discern together, through living and studying the scriptures, through paying attention to what God is doing in your life and in the world, so common sense, that's how we determine how to obey or not obey our rulers, our leaders. And then along with discernment, Paul says what we need is love. Or in the words of the great theologian, uh, Tina Turner, what's love got to do, got to do with it? Everything, Paul would say. Listen to what he says immediately after a passage. Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So after he says, hey, you got to pay your taxes, he then all of a sudden shifts to talking about love as if he's saying there's one thing that you can never stop paying to everyone no matter what, including our government officials, and that's love. Love is at the heart of the way of Jesus. And of course, if you know Romans 12, Paul unpacks beautifully what love looks like. So discernment, love are two practical ways to figure out how do we relate well to our rulers. And I think that's all well and good and wise and biblical. But what if your ruler is Donald Trump? Uh, full disclosure, so this is my American wife, Christy, on the night of the 2016 U.S. elections. I think it's almost too fitting, right? She's draped with her American flag, witnessing with disappointment and dread the election of Donald J. Trump to be the 45th president of the United States and the death of democracy. 
And so some background. Uh, both Christy and I were actually American citizens. And in 2008, when we were 18 years old and finishing high school, my wife actually had a chance to vote for Barack Obama. Uh, Christy voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, and you can bet your bottom dollar we're going to vote for Joe Biden in 2020. And so let's get real. Donald Trump is not an easy person to love. And perhaps it doesn't take that much discernment to know that man isn't always the promoter of good in his own personal life or in his policies. And yet, how do I, as Paul invites me to, love Donald Trump, at least as a ruler? How do I, if he somehow gets elected again, how do I submit well once more to him? And I think one way to do it, honestly, one way to do it is through prayer. Yes, prayer. This is not a cop-out. Prayer is the ultimate exercise in discernment and love. And that's why I want to practice what we preach here. Because the way of Jesus, if it's anything, it's the most practical thing. So here's an idea we're going to do this morning. And I got this idea. I'm stealing it from a, a church in Chicago. Uh, for the 20, so some background, uh, leading up to the 2016 election, during one of their Sunday services, uh, this church actually put up a picture of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, the two candidates. And then they invited people to pray for the person they weren't going to vote for. Isn't that amazing? And, and you have to remember, politics in America is so divisive and contentious even within a single church. And so I thought, when I heard about this idea, I thought it was such a beautiful, powerful, practical example of one, obedience to rulers, but two, of loving your enemies, <laughs> or at least people you disagree with, which is, I think, at the heart of the way of Jesus. And so that's actually what I'm going to invite us here to do today. So I tried to find the two most photogenic pictures of these men, right? You know, whatever you think about them, they do have nice smiles, right? So we can give them that credit at least. And so what I want to invite us to do this morning, when maybe you've never done this before, maybe this is strange to you, but I, I think this comes right out of the heart of Paul. We're going to pray for these candidates. And I want you to pray especially for the person you would not, uh, since we're Canadian, maybe you can't vote for them, uh, at least the person you don't support, okay? Let's just put it that way. Now, I do realize also as Canadians, this can seem a bit removed. So in a moment, I'm actually also going to put up pictures of Premier Horgan and the former leader of the BC Liberals, Andrew Wilkinson, okay, to bring it a little closer to home. And we're going to pray for them as well. All right? So right now, we're going to take one minute to pray for Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And I'm going to invite you to pray for three things. Number one, pray for them personally just as people, for their well-being, for wisdom, for having a right relationship with God. And number two, pray for discernment on how to best talk about these rulers, or I guess we might not obey them as Canadians, but their uh, presidency does impact us. So how do you discern that well? And the third thing to pray for is love. Pray for God to increase your love for them. <laughs> and increase your love for people you might disagree with politically. Does that make sense? So pray for their well-being personally, for discernment, for love. 
okay? So let's take one minute just in silence to pray for these candidates. Amen. And then we're going to pray for these two next. So Premier Horgan and uh, former BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. We'll take another minute to pray for their well-being, for our discernment, and our love. Let's pray. Amen. So church, thanks for trying to do that together. Um, what we did this morning, you can do anytime, anywhere for our leaders. Because like we said, it is a hard time to be a leader, a government official right now. Now, it's, it's one thing to pray for uh, our secular rulers. I think that actually reflects their rightful place as God's servants, right? Us praying for them. But we should never pray to them, right? That'd be very strange. That would actually, would literally be idolatry. No, rather, as disciples of Jesus, there's only one ruler we pray to. And that's our heavenly ruler, Christ himself, our king, right? Now, remember, when we say Jesus is our King, our Lord, uh, that doesn't mean he's just like the Lord of our little private hearts. You know, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and now he's stuck there. No, it's different. I, I actually love what Ched Myers, the biblical commentator and political activist, said. He says, we want to reduce Jesus just to the Lord of our hearts so we can invite him in and keep him from getting out and impact us, impacting us in the world. <laughs> Oh, how true is that? If you're like me, I have this tendency to just make Jesus the Lord of my heart, or to, let's be honest, I like to like make a little tiny corner of my heart for him that he can just hang out and reign in. <laughs> but very truly, I tell you, we'll never really understand the gospel when we reduce Jesus' lordship because his lordship over everything is the gospel. <laughs> 
So I actually want to close our time together by learning to let Jesus not just be the ruler of our hearts, but, but our world. And again, how do we do that? How do you practically do that? Well, one way is by praying and living the Lord's Prayer. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer, uh, but for those of you who aren't, the prayer is something that Jesus taught his disciple when they asked him to teach them how to pray. And you can find versions of it in Matthew chapter 11 or in Luke chapter 11, or, or sorry, Matthew chapter 6 or in Luke chapter 11. Now, the prayer itself is very valuable in its wording. You could pray it word for word, but it's also a great pattern for prayer, right? It can give you the major themes and structures involved in a rich prayer life. But what I want to focus on tonight in relation to what Paul says is this prayer is actually one of the most political things Jesus ever taught his disciples. Now, remember, politics in its truest definition just simply refers to the way we organize our communal life, okay? So by that definition, Jesus is deeply political. Never let someone tell you otherwise. Being a Christian is deeply political, and this Lord's Prayer is deeply political, right? Just think about it with me for a moment. It's a prayer to our Father in heaven, to God, whose name is to be hallowed. Now, to hollow God's name means God's name gets full recognition and allegiance. It's the name above all names. This is a prayer about God's kingdom. Kingdoms are political. There's even that provocative line in the middle of this prayer that should terrify any ruler or person who sets up their kingdom in the way of God's, right? It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to lay out what his kingdom looks like. You don't have to guess. <laughs> the Lord's Prayer gives us a concrete picture of what happens when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, we get to live in God's kingdom. We are people who align our wills with God's will. People get their daily bread. Nobody's going hungry in the kingdom of God. People's debts are forgiven, and they forgive other people's debts, right? In our consumeristic, debt-wracked world, this is good news. <laughs> Forgiveness is at the heart of this kingdom. Uh, people don't give in to temptation. Evil is defeated. Church, if Jesus was running for office, this would be the platform that he would be running on. And even though we can't vote for Jesus, it doesn't mean we can't live as if he isn't ultimately our premier, our president, our ultimate ruler. Are, are you with me? Every day, let this prayer be a guidepost to what type of world we want to see and what type of life we want to live. Jesus called this the kingdom of God life or eternal life. And one last thing about this prayer. You know, I've heard throughout your series on Romans that the gospel has been the central thread that has been woven throughout. And that's beautiful. That's amazing. That's what Paul intended for this letter to the Romans. And he and we believe the gospel changes everything. Now, what is the gospel? I think there are many ways to articulate the good news about Jesus. 
But one way is to see the gospel is baked right into this prayer. And the giveaway is actually in the name itself. Uh, we call this the Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us, right? It's something he handed to us. It's a treasure. It's a gift. But there's another reason why we call it the Lord's Prayer. Uh, theologians throughout our rich tradition have drawn our attention to this, this beautiful truth. This is the Lord's Prayer because ultimately it is a portrait of Jesus himself. Listen to how Wesley Hill, Anglican theologian, describes this. He says, the Lord's Prayer is a portrait of Jesus Christ, the one who addresses God as Father, who sanctifies God's name, who announces and bears God's healing reign, who submits to God's will, who gives his flesh as daily bread for the life of the world, who provides for the forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross and thus inducts his followers into a lifestyle of forgiveness and who ultimately delivers believers from the power of death and the devil. Jesus embodies and enacts the prayer he taught his followers to pray. Come on now. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that blow your mind and lift up your hearts at the same time? The prayer itself is the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Do you see this church? Do you trust this church? So whatever happens this week with the U.S. elections, whatever comes in the aftermath of these B.C. elections, we, we live as citizens under Jesus' kingdom first and foremost, and it's actually that citizenship that allows us to live well under our earthly rulers. And so, in closing, friends, I invite you now to pray aloud after me this beautiful, political, subversive kingdom prayer. And so, I invite you to really think about these words we're going to pray and pay attention to the longing inside of you for this kind of world and this kind of king. So let's pray, church. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.